0: You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and the skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Welcome to the ProServe podcast, a podcast for leaders of thriving boutique professional services firms. For those that are not familiar with us, Collective 54 is the first mastermind community Focused entirely and exclusively on the very unique needs of the boutique professional services sector. My name is Greg Alexander. I'm the founder and I'm going to be your host today. And on this episode, we're going to talk about how ownership structures in boutiques change over time. For example, sometimes we start our firms and we own all of it. Or maybe we start it with another partner. And then over time, you know, key employees start to contribute, the firm gets bigger, and you need to maybe include others in the uh, ownership structure. And, and doing that correctly can be tricky. So we're going to talk about that today, and hopefully you can learn something. We have a great role model with us today. His name is Mike Braun, and Mike's been through this, and he's going to share a little bit with us how he has uh, been able to make this happen. So Mike, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your firm.
1: Uh thanks very much. It's uh, glad to be here. So our firm is a sales effectiveness firm which you may be familiar with. <laughs> yeah. And uh although a little smaller markets so we're probably down market from where you played before and and we think of it as working with the the small to mid size market for people that have an underdeveloped sales team and they're trying to get more out of it, which is we find to be a large majority of CEOs are trying to get more out of their sales teams.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very good. Okay. And as I understand it, you started the firm and it was an equal partnership between yourself and another person. And then over time, it became four owners. Is that correct? That is
1: correct. And the the first 50-50, not only was another person, the other person was my brother.
0: Oh, so, so we,
1: have, we have the family component here as well. So we we all, we ran around in other businesses and, you know, both grew up through the sales side, learned a lot and decided that uh, we were going to share all of our knowledge and start a business that we knew something about. And our goal, and this is a funny part, our goal was we're not going to get on airplanes because we were both road warriors and we're going to make a living and we're never going to have any other partners.
0: Okay, so... That
1: was the original move, right?
0: Yep. COVID certainly helped with the airplane thing, but (laughs) you you went from two partners to four partners, so what happened?
1: Well, as we went on, and then, you know, we started this back in 2008 at the other, you know, bad part of life when the (laughs) recession was hitting. So we've been through a couple of them now. As time went on, I think we, we decided probably very late in the game for me, but we decided it was a great lifestyle business for us and a few other people. But now we wanted more. Mm -hmm. And to get more, we needed to move on. And we actually needed to make it a business we could scale and grow. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we needed to bring in some other highly talented people. And when we brought those people in, we needed a way to retain them. And then of course, these smart young people started asking questions like, well, if we grow this thing and knock it out of the park, what's in it for me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> those so damn started smart to people. We get all
1: those questions. And I I think what happened is we said, we're not going to get to where we want to fast enough by ourselves. Yep.
0: Okay. So let me ask some tactical questions. So that's good context for us. So, you know, the first thing you got to get right when you're cutting uh, new partners into the partnership is the valuation. So how'd you get everybody to agree on what the firm is worth?
1: Great question. And I I did, I didn't take your advice from the chapter because I hadn't read it yet. Uh, You know, go, go get a good investment banker and go, go get really smart people to help you. So I did some work, created a valuation formula, took it on cheap to some accounting friends of mine, not that they're cheap, they're, Professional accounting valuation people, but I got them to do it sort of on the gratis take a peek kind of thing. We came up with a financial formula that said, you know, I think cleanly said, here's how much we're earning a year and here's what our cash flow is and that kind of stuff. And then you have to pick your multiple, right? And it's, it's how do you pick a multiple when you're, when you don't, you're not really selling, you're not really in the market, you don't have good comparables. So we just went and found a study that said, here's what the average management consulting comparable is in i think it was 2012 and we we all said is that a good enough benchmark for us internally to put a number on it and through some discussion on the math everybody said yeah as an internal number it's probably not the maximum we would get if we sold the business but for us that works as a metric that we can use
0: yeah Perfect. I mean, the most important thing is to get agreement from all the parties, which it sounded like you were able to do, which is great. Which takes me to my next question, because it's one thing to say, this is how we're going to value the firm. And then there's another thing to say, you know, here's who here's who has the rights to do X, Y and Z, because once once people become partners, they have rights. So how did you handle governance? Great question. And and it took
1: a pretty big evolution in our buy sell because I had one between my brother and I, which was relatively easy to put together. Um, but now you started bringing other people in and you've got the whole control issue. So so the way we did it is we said, we still have to make sure that we keep controlling interest. So that kind of divided very quickly how many shares were available. And, and then we even um, set it up so that there's sort of different levels of membership, if you will. So he and I still have what I would call company control. And they're really minority partners that share in the income-producing distributions, as well as if we ever did sell the company, they would obviously get their share of that. But um, they had less. If we disagreed, they would have less say in what we're going to do or what process moving forward. And that took some work because, you know, being a minority shareholder, everybody wants equity. until yeah. so they realize what being a minority shareholder is really about.
0: Right. You know, and everybody wants equity until they have to pay for it. So did, did you right. grant, grant the equity or did you sell it? Great question.
1: I am one of those people that never
0: grants equity. <laughs> I
1: don't, I don't believe in it. Right. It's like, I worked for this. I'm not going to give it to you because yep. you work hard. So they paid in and and each of them did differently. One, saved money for a period of time. Although we did it kind of like a stock option. So I'll, yeah. I'll say I locked in a price and said, you can buy in at this price. And then, you know, it took a couple of years to save that money and, then you know, physically wrote a check. Mm-hmm. The other person said, I want to get in faster. And so we basically did a seller finance to said, okay, you're bought in today, but we'll do an installment purchase over a period of time and you can buy in. But either way, they are buying shares to become owners of the company.
0: And are they still doing that? And how long does it take to buy the shares? Is there a schedule?
1: There's a schedule. The one is, you know, wrote the check up front. So they saved for about two years and bought in. The second one will have bought in after about two and a half years.
0: Okay. Very good. You know, I'm glad to hear you say this because I'm you and I are similar in this sense. I, I don't believe in giving equity away. I think you got to earn it, and it should be paid for. Otherwise, it's really not worth anything. So, but you know, sometimes people struggle with that. But you learn real quick who really wants to be a partner. I mean, if they're willing to save up for two years and buy the stock, then they're they're all in. You know, if if they're not, then maybe they're not. So the advice to the listeners would be is to is to follow that. It's a good screening tool. Tell me a little bit about how you and your brother over time as you decided you wanted more than a lifestyle business and you're going to grow it, you know, it's one thing for the equity to change and the minority rights to come into play. But what about the day-to-day job and responsibilities? How did that change over time?
1: Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because one of the things we said is, you know, we have to, um, we're going to have to migrate. And then of course, if you do, if you do, I'll, I'll give you a general idea on that. So, I'm in my early 60s. My brother's four years younger than I am. These other two partners are 15 years younger than we are. So now you got four partners with completely different time horizons that have completely different ideas of the time frame to grow this business or, or, or move to the next step, right? Yep. So we started putting things in place pretty quickly where um, I started giving away responsibilities on finance and product development and giving away responsibilities on managing the delivery team, if you will. And my brother ran the, the, the BD and the marketing side of things largely. Um, So I was moving myself out of it and continue to do that, which is a weird spot to be. That's probably another podcast. (laughs) And, um, um, but we, we really started getting clear about who's doing what and who owns what um, in that process with a much more focused goal on how do we, how do we drive enterprise value, right? not just, not just Not just EBITDA, but enterprise value and how are we going to grow this thing? And, and of course, some of the group, I'll just call it the younger part of the group was, let's take every dollar reinvested in the business and grow this thing <laughs> over the next 15 years. And, and, and as the eldest partner, I'm the, we don't want to put, we would keep some of the money, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we were in that mode um, and, and continue to be, but I think we found a happy medium. Um, you know, if I think about one of, one of the other members talking about the rule of 40 when it comes to sort of profit and valuation, mm. that was super helpful around, um, let's be a 2020 company, right? Yeah. Let's have real cash flow. Let's have real money. Let's have a real firm. And and inlets grow at 20%. And some years we were pretty close. Some years we're just off that, but, but that's the model we're, we're chasing after.
0: Yep. And Mike, after having a successful family lifestyle business, life's pretty good. Everybody's making money. You're not on an airplane, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what caused you to wake up one day and say, you know, I want to do something more than a lifestyle business? you know,
1: really interesting. We always said we wanted a company, not just our own little practices, because we could have done that. So we did build a company and we brought other people in right away. Um, But I think it really changed, and this is probably something for everybody to think about, when we said, we want this thing to live beyond us, there's gonna be a day where we end, right? And that wasn't even really that close when we started having these conversations, we were still probably off a decade. And yet, if it's going to live on, it's got to live beyond us. And how do we make something that continues to provide value to our clients, continues to provide, uh, solve the problems for them, and gives people great careers, you know, when I'm off doing something else.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm never going to get there. Otherwise, my, you know, this is going to look like I'm going to work till I'm done working and then this thing's over. Yeah. Which was going to be a problem for my brother who had more years left, right? Like, like, sorry, dude, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) and and that just wasn't feasible and then we said maybe 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 we have to build a real growing company here and to do that we need some
0: other people now sometimes um founders aren't as idealistic as that maybe they're too capitalistic meaning they sell their firm they get a bunch of cash they don't really what they don't care what happens to the firm after that they've been validated so to speak and they look at their bank balance and it puts a smile on the face and they ride off into the sunset. Others say, you know, I really care about my clients and want them to be treated well afterwards. I really care about my employees. I want them to have good paying jobs and career opportunities afterwards. You know, and there's people that fall, you know, in the middle between those two things. So obviously, you know, you've made substantial changes because you care what happens to your firm after you leave. Was there a particular influence that uh, made you think that way.
1: Oh uh, boy, that's a that's a really good question. And I, and I will also say, as, as as much as it sounds like I did that perfectly, there are days where you think about the bank account.
0: Yeah, sure, always. Yeah. Right,
1: right. And and so if I'm honest about it, there are days where it was like, well, how do we maximize this? And then there are other days where it's, no, we got to do the right thing by the employees. And then there are other days where it's like, hey, these clients deserve the best. And so you you, you do run around that triangle a little bit. But, but from an influence perspective, um, this, this this is going to sound really, really weird, but I'm going to go back to my mother, <laughs> who would tell us as kids, you know, if you do the right thing by people and hold your head high, you don't have to be the richest person in the room. Yeah. Good and, advice. And maybe without even thinking about that, that, that was buried in there at age six, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. You know, I, I think we all need role models. Parents obviously can play that role. Um, you know, for me, you know, I, I study entrepreneurship. That's what I'm passionate about. And the most successful entrepreneurs there's always somebody has more money than you. (laughs) Always. Always. I mean, I don't care who you are. It could be Elon Musk and now he's no longer the richest person in the world, but the really successful entrepreneurs measure their life's work around impact. And that's not to say that you shouldn't make a profit. You should. However, impact is greater than that. And I think what you're doing is fantastic. And it sounds like you guys have given a lot of thought to this. And as a result of that, you've, you've, you've built a great company. And you're in your early 60s. And you know the next chapter of your life might start here relatively soon. And it sounds like the firm's in good hands afterwards. So I really appreciate you coming on the on the podcast. I'm I'm really excited for the private member Q&A that we'll have with you where members can ask you questions directly. But on behalf of the membership, appreciate you making a contribution today.
1: Thanks for the time today. And again, thanks for your input into it. You were part of all that thinking.
0: Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Okay. So a few takeaways for the listeners. Um, So if you are a member, look for the invite to uh, Mike's Q&A and um, be sure to attend that so you can ask your questions to him directly. If you're not a member, I encourage you to think about joining. You can go to collective54.com and fill out a contact us form and we'll get in contact with you. If you want to consume some more content, a couple of ideas for you. One is uh, subscribe to our newsletter, Collective 54 Insights, it comes out every week. You get a blog on Monday, a video on Wednesday and a chart on Friday. A little bit more digestible. And then uh, we've got a couple of great books. We have The Boutique, How to Start, Scale and Sell a Professional Services Firm. You can find that on Amazon. And then we have a member-only book, available to members only, I should say, called The Founder Bottleneck, How to Scale Yourself. And it talks about some of the things we discussed today, which is legacy, succession, et cetera. So I'd point you in those directions. But thanks for listening. And uh, until next time, I wish you all the best of luck as you try to grow, scale, and sell your firm someday. Take care.